Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Welcome to the to the presentation this morning. We're so glad to be invited by the BBA to offer this presentation. And our hope is that by the end of this two-hour session, you'll have the basic tools that you will need to potentially represent a survivor of domestic abuse in one of these restraining order cases. Um, this by no means covers everything that you'll ever need to know about the topic. We will do our very best, but the slides will go out and there is an accompanying manual for this training. So if you do sign up to take a case, you will first get the slides, you will have a manual, and most importantly, you will be paired with a mentor, perhaps somebody like Alex, who will guide you through the process, somebody who's done many of these and will be able to answer your questions as you go. Um, so we hope you will learn what you at least need to get started or gain an interest in this um, in this topic. This is pro bono pro bono month as well as domestic violence awareness month. So I'm making a plug for both taking pro bono cases wherever you can and also taking domestic violence um, cases. And um, with that, I think we'll get started. Also, there will be some interactive portions. I hope I don't have to speak directly at you for the next two hours. Um, so for my portion, I will have a little bit of an engagement. And for that, I welcome people to participate to the extent that they are comfortable. Please put your answers when I ask you in the Q&A. It'll be an answer um, and I'll just read them out loud for the group to, to hear. I'll let you know when that happens, when it's happening. Thank you. All right. And so we'll start today with just two slides that paint a picture about why we do this work. And we'll just look a little bit at some of the context for our work. Most of it is statistics. Um, Alex, can I please have? So these slides you may read on your own, but intimate partner violence and domestic abuse impacts many people all over the country, regardless of race, socioeconomic background, religion, gender, or um, income. Intimate partner violence affects millions of Americans every year, and about one in three women and one in four men will have experienced some sort of physical violence from an intimate partner during their lifetime. Um, about one in four women and one in nine men have experienced some coercion from an intimate partner. And almost half of all women reported psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Got some sites. If you're curious about these stats, please feel free to visit the sites below. Um, we specifically represent low-income individuals in our program and I think it's important to keep in mind some of the intersections of poverty or being under-resourced and intimate partner violence or domestic abuse. Um, so domestic violence we've seen can decrease the survivor's um, educational attainment, can impact survivor's ability to maintain and obtain employment, can lead to negative health outcomes. And so it's very difficult for a person who is having a difficult situation at home whether it's poverty related or violence related or abuse generally, to keep a job, which makes it difficult for that person 
to then have the financial stability and ability to remove themselves from the situation, especially when children are involved. And so we typically are representing individuals who do have children. It is not a requirement for the program, but many people who are impacted by domestic violence also have um, children that they're caring for and trying to maintain a um, roof over their head. So what are we talking about today? We'll just get everybody on the same page. When we talk about domestic violence, we are talking about a pattern of behavior in a relationship where one person tries to maintain power and control over another. We are not necessarily talking about one incident. And so as we get deeper into the training, we will talk a little bit about how these things present and how these patterns develop. And we mention that because we use the word domestic violence in this training, but generally we're talking about more than that. And so if you receive a case or you help a survivor who does not mention physical violence, don't be surprised. Um, we're not necessarily looking at a person who's had one incident. And so there might be a history of behavior that is leading the person to feel like they are in fear of harm that might lead to physical, a physical incident. So that's what we talk about when we talk about domestic violence. And when we talk about abuse, generally we're talking about the behaviors and we'll have a little bit of a list later um, what those behaviors are, but we're talking about the behaviors which an abuser uses to maintain and gain power and control over the survivor. All right, so this is the moment I would love for people to join in if you're comfortable. There are no wrong answers. Um, so we've talked about the patterns of behavior, which may not always be physical. And um, I'd like folks to, if they can, think of some incidents that might qualify as verbal abuse. So as you have those, just go ahead and put them in the Q&A. So anything that comes to mind when you hear verbal abuse. We've got manipulation, absolutely. Bargaining, bartering, asking the person to do things. Great, thank you, these are coming in. We've got shouting, cursing, we've got gaslighting, threats and manipulation, name calling, belittling and blaming. Absolutely, all are correct. So you all are somewhat familiar with what these things might look like. And so when a survivor comes to our office, one of the first hurdles we get over with people who need services is somebody who's just considering making a move. They'll say, well, I'm in a relationship that I feel like is not safe, but it's not abusive because I've never been hit. Meanwhile, they've got all these incidents of what folks have been putting, um, name calling, belittling and blaming, shouting and cursing. It's just not a restful place at home. So the is coming home after a long day of work or whatever they're up to school, um, living their lives, and somebody's at home greeting them with, interrogating where they've been, asking who they've been with, um, manipulating them verbally, making threats. So, right, even though we're saying it doesn't always get to a physical level at the start, there is usually some sort of a threat for it to become um, physical. Yeah, uh, let me make sure I get all of them. Cursing, absolutely using language that is intentionally offensive to the survivor, all would count as a verbal abuse. All right. Um, Great, thank you all. 
Um, Alex, can we go back, please? Um, I'll just take a moment. I'll go through the whole list. So if you read ahead and you have some examples, you can start putting them in the in the Q and A. So I'd like folks to start thinking about what they might think of as examples of emotional abuse. And I think a couple of the ones that are listed under verbal probably qualify. So, but if people have different ones that might be more emotional, I'm going to go ahead and pull manipulation from, I'm going to say blaming as well from verbal and just carry them right on to the um, emotional. Amazing. Isolation. That was the first one that came in. I'll wait for a couple more if people have them. But isolation is a big one. And so when we talk about these patterns, one of the things that we see quite frequently in the cases that we handle is a person will be invited to move out of the community where they had been living, where they have resources. And it might seem like a great option because the schools are better, the cost of living is less, and it's just a prettier area, especially if we're talking about like a very urban area. But then the person arrives in the new community and they find that either people there don't speak their language, they're not able to move as freely, especially in we're talking about in the greater Boston area, if there's not super accessible public transportation and they're not able to access the places that they like to worship, they can't get to the grocery stores where they like to buy their food. And so they become even more dependent on their partner for basically all connection. It also makes it more difficult for families, family members and friends to be able to visit and check up on the person and kind of keep an eye out or help if there's an emergency. Great, I think isolation was a really great one, thank you. Um, any ideas about how physical, oh sorry, financial abuse might appear? Oh, I'm sorry, I'll go back to keep putting the financial ones. There was one more under emotional, I think. I will hurt myself if you leave. Absolutely, yes. There, that is a prime example of emotional abuse, making it the survivor's fault if something bad happens to either the abuser or the children or something like that. Yeah, we see those quite quite frequently and it's a horrible situation for our clients to be in. Um, okay, so let's do... They are somehow abandoning. Abandoning the partner or their children or their household responsibilities and somehow they are not a good provider for the family in that way. Um, also requiring certain behavior in exchange for finances. So if you don't do what I say, I won't pay the phone bill this month. 
Hi, everybody. I think Lola might be having um, an issue. Oh, looks like she's joining us back. I've been dropped off twice. I'm not sure. Um, but we'll keep going because these are really great examples. So I was talking about low-income folks and how the financial abuse might present. Um, credit debt we've seen. And the WBA the WBF also has a training on financial abuse. It does include opening lines of credit in the name of the survivor without their permission, not paying bills that the parties owned together, not paying taxes, filing taxes incorrectly, and taking tax returns, things like that. So all of that we would qualify as um, financial abuse. Also, great examples. Thank you all. Um, keeping accounting of the partner's spending. Absolutely. So things like the partner is not allowed to have their own bank account and all monies have to go into a joint bank account and there's no cash spending. Um, so the survivor has a debit card that is essentially being tracked and that serves two purposes, both financial abuse and that it keeps the abuser having absolute control over all the money, which means they can withdraw it at any time and close the account at any time. Um, but it also is an opportunity for the abuser to track where the person is spending money. And so the issues with debit cards are pretty, pretty insidious. We do see them. So folks are noticing where if the client says they had dinner with their sister, but they really were somewhere else, we'll see the abuser pull up the debit card um, or the online statements and say, well, it looks like at that time you were at this place and said, what were you doing? And the person has to then account for, for that. Great examples. You all are rocking. Um, let's do a couple of examples. You might think about sexual um, abuse. So this can be kind of a tricky one or a challenging one to talk about, but I think it'll be helpful just to get some ideas out there about how sexual abuse might present. And it's not always what you think. We're not always talking about a physical assault. Wow. Do I have some, some plans in here? Forbidding birth control. Thank you. That is a big one. Preventing the person from accessing um, birth control, preventing the person from accessing gynecological care, however that might present. Um, forced pregnancies, forced abortions, things like that. Other examples of sexual control. It may not need to go without saying, but I will also mention, I know I said it's not always sexual assault or physical assault, but sometimes it is. And married individuals don't have a duty to have sex with one another. And we do see that when sometimes folks approach seeking services, they will list all the other things that have happened, but the Indels mentioned that there's been some forced sexual intercourse and but it's okay it's not really part of the abuse because we're married right no it is part of the abuse and we absolutely consider that thank you somebody's put somebody just put that exact same thing forcing the partner into some sexual activity whether it's when they don't want to the way they don't want to when they say no or the opposite denying the person sexual activity so we do see both where the person will just withhold sex which we also would consider not part of an every healthy relationship. 
wonderful. Not using condoms to prevent STDs. Absolutely. Not being monogamous and not being forthright about the fact that they are that they have other partners and refusing to use protection at the request of the survivor. Yes, we would say that is abusive behavior as well. Okay, let's do a couple for cultural slash identity. Thoughts? The way this list has been going, I'm certain folks have lots of ideas. Wow, we started off strong. Forcing the partner to convert to, convert to a different religion. Absolutely. Many individuals choose to convert because it's, a, it's how they feel they should move forward with their relationship. However, when the person is either coerced to convert or told if they don't convert, then the relationship must end. Who would consider that um, cultural abuse? Also preventing the partner from practicing their own religion, whether it is the same as the abuser or different. Preventing the person from going to the kinds of worship services they want to or forcing them to participate in worship services that they do not want to. Um, not recognizing or criticizing culture. Yes, absolutely. We get some name calling. We get things like, well, I saved you from... XYZ place and you'd be nowhere without me. If I didn't get you here, where would you be? Um, belittling, and that does come along with verbal and emotional um, abuse as well, right? Because nobody, it's not a healthy space to be having somebody belittle you or poking fun, taking jabs at um, somebody's culture or identity, um, shaming people for their views. Yes. You're so stupid. How did you not know this? Did you grow up in a barn? Did, were you raised without education? How come you have no culture? Things like this. Absolutely, we would call that cultural and identity abuse. I will throw a couple on here that I have not seen yet. Oh, they're still here. Yes, I'll keep going. Threatening to out someone. Yes. Disparaging someone's traditions. Yes. So thank you for who put the uh, threatening to out someone out. We, our program is still called Women's Bar Foundation, and mostly we represent women. Um, and that is not the extent of our services. We represent all individuals of all genders and all sexual orientations. And threatening to out someone is a big deal for our LGBTQ clients. And having somebody who's not ready to disclose to the community that they're engaging in these relationships be threatened with that information is absolutely abusive. Um, also, we do represent a large number of folks who are immigrants and are coming from different cultures, either here residing lawfully or out of status. And so there are sometimes threats to disclose that the person is here without the required documentation as a threat um, and keeping the person trapped in that way. Um, disparaging someone's traditions was another one. Yes, absolutely. The stuff you do is just weird. I don't get it. It's not good. We just need to get with the modern times. Let's just let all that old stuff go and do the things that I prefer to do. Yes, we would say disparaging somebody's traditions is absolutely abusive. Um, and finally, we've reached um, physical abuse. This one, again, I don't want to say it might be, some of them might be 
quite obvious, but I think it's one that we see in the news quite often. So I will take a couple if folks have examples that they'd like to share of how physical abuse might present. I'll start us off. So physical assault is one of the evident ones. The person who is the defendant in the case actually physically hitting the person. Um, threats to hit strangulation is a big one. And strangulation is one that the domestic violence community takes quite seriously because there is a lot of research and data that um, correlates strangulation or threats to strangle, strangle somebody with lethality in cases. So when we hear somebody say, this has been going on in their relationship and it's not part of something they've agreed to as part of a consensual um, portion of their relationship, we are very much concerned about that. And we always highlight those for the courts when we get cases where strangulation is part. Also, the restraining order statute does not cover threats to property. So we won't spend too much time about it, but we do consider certain kinds of property damage, physical abuse. So just because the abuser has not quite hit the person, if the abuser is making a habit of punching the wall near the survivor's face or throwing things in that direction or breaking things, we would really consider all that as behavior that is putting the client in potential risk, at potential risk for physical assault themselves because it is a thin line between punching somebody, punching the wall behind somebody and actually punching the person. So those are some really great ideas. I kind of wish I could make this list for you all um, to take with you, but you kind of heard, you've understood. Um, the point of the list is it's nothing that's going to be groundbreaking. However, it's just food for thought. So if somebody in your practice shows up to your office and says these things and they think they're not safe, I really want folks to walk away not feeling like, oh, well, that's not really abuse or that's not really what the statute covers and we can't really do anything about it. So if a person is saying all these things, I mean, the reality is these things seldom stand alone. So for the purposes of the conversation, we went through them one by one. But it's rare that a person is not emotionally impacted by verbal abuse. It's rare that somebody's not feeling emotionally and verbally abused with it when they're being sexually assaulted. It's rare that a person's having mean things said about their culture or their identity and don't feel that emotionally and it's not verbal, you know, things like that. So a lot of these things go in hand. Um, and it is completely okay and appropriate to highlight all of them in your pleadings when you go to represent your client. Well, that was great. Thank you all. Alex, may I please have the next slide? So we have a little bit more engagement and I thank you for your participation. It's been really great so far. Um, so one of the common questions that we get and even outside of your work, you might have been part of these conversations as well. Why do survivors stay? And for this one, I will ask people to just put the reasons why people don't leave these relationships in the Q&A before we reveal the question, the answers, because once they're revealed, <laughs> they are revealed. So go ahead and put 
in the Q&A reasons you would think survivors stay. And I will read them as they come. I'm going to go back just very quickly. Um, sorry, the Q&A gets kind of full and I didn't scroll far enough. There was a question that I would like to answer very quickly. The question is, would physically harming a pet be considered physical, not just emotional? I would say so. I would say so. Um, and we do offer a training on supporting folks with pets around exiting a relationship. So if you have more questions about that, please feel free to reach out and we will be offering more training on them. Um, the MSPCA does a lot of work with survivors around this exact um, topic. So. All right, so for reasons folks say, I'm getting financial instability. Yes, we've talked about that one. Inability to leave financial, emotional resources, et cetera. Yep, financial independence financial dependence rather. Um, they believe their abuser will change, absolutely. And so they forgive the behavior over and over again. Yes, our survivor clients are just like everybody else, hopeful and optimistic, hoping for the best for the future. And one of the things we have not yet talked about is people don't go on one date and find themselves in these situations, right? Like if people, if somebody went on a date with a person who said terrible things about their culture and threatened them in all these um, demeaning ways and wanted control over their finances, they wouldn't go on a second date. So this kind of stuff, it builds over time and it does take a little bit of time for the survivor to realize how progressed the abuse has become. And so when the first incident happens, a person does tend to be inclined to believe that the person will change. It was a one-time thing. When it happens the second time, they might still be inclined to think it will happen. And so for however many of times that takes for the individual, it's just what it takes. But people are always hopeful that this last time was the last time, especially if the incidents are far and few in between, and especially if they like kind of go in between different kinds where sometimes it's verbal and sometimes it's financial or things that the person does not quite perceive as abusive. Um, so there is often an expectation or hope that things will be better in the future. Wow, you all are amazing. Still loves the abuser. Yes, yes. For all the reasons that I just said, right? The person is not going on a second date with somebody who's just started to abuse them. Typically, there has been some sort of a development and a build up in the relationship where the people love each other. And so it's not always so easy to just walk away. Um, fear of retaliation. Yes. Hold on to your hats when I say that there is still a lot of blaming and shaming of victims and survivors in our culture. And so it is not always advantageous for somebody who's going through a relationship like this to speak up about it. Often we see the survivor get, well, what did you do? How did you instigate? How come you didn't prevent it? And asking questions that are really not appropriate and not supportive of separating from the relationship. Um, and then getting friends of the abuser, family of the abuser calling, especially if they're children, um, getting involved in the mix and either threatening to harm the person physically or threatening to take their kids away. So we do see sometimes where grandparents are very, very involved in the situation. So 
where the parents of the abuser will threaten to take the children into their own custody, especially if our client is quite low income and the in-laws, we'll call them in-laws, even if they're not married, are quite well resourced. Um, so that we do see that as part of retaliation. Um, because notwithstanding the abuse, they still love one another. Yes, yes. Um, they are made to believe that no one will love them as much as their abuser. Absolutely. So much of this is psychological. I'm not going to get sick of saying this. Right? The, this. We're talking about patterns. This is not anything that happens overnight. There are recourses for people who are assaulted or abused by a stranger or somebody they barely know, but that's not the statute that we're talking about here. These are not the relationships that we're dealing with um, for this training. And so there is this period of time where eventually the person starts to believe, especially if we've been talking about isolation, and if our survivor is spending the majority of their time at home with a partner or their children and starting to feel like, well, this is the entire world, right? Nobody will ever understand or get me, especially if there's something, secret is not the word that I want to use, but I'll use it as a state, as a placeholder, especially if there is some information that the survivor does not want to disclose. Um, so we'll use as an example, if we're talking about a client who is in an LGBTQ um, community, feeling like, well, if they say this about me and I'm not ready to be living in this community openly, then where will I go? And so there is a tendency to just stay. Um, next, we have um, a fear of future violence. Absolutely, a fear of being lonely and developing a complex attachment. Absolutely, yes. Um, financial stability, love, hope, relationship will get better. Yes, childcare. Yes, thank you. Childcare, housing. So some of the really tangible financial things that we're talking about. If a person, if you've got a household with a child or two kids or three kids and the survivor leaves, who's watching the kids? If there's no money to pay for childcare, either that survivor is dependent upon the family members, their own family members, the family members of their abuser or their abuser completely to help with childcare. And so leaving is really just a difficult situation. Housing, I'm glad somebody's mentioned it. Um, so housing is a big one. There are many instances what we see our clients, where we see our clients in subsidized housing situations where the abuser is the one who actually holds the housing benefit. And so leaving would mean going through the hoops of changing that benefit or applying for benefits on their own. And I'm assuming most people on here are from the greater Boston area and you know how difficult the housing market is, even if you're a median income person who can generally afford to live life. Imagine being a low income person who needs a multiple bedroom unit because you've got multiple children. Um, so housing is definitely one of the big reasons that people stay. Great. Immigration status. Thank you. Yes. Um, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about identity and culture. But yes, um, often we get survivors who are actually here on some sort of a visa pending um, their relationship with the abuser. And now they're here and they're stuck and they have nowhere to go. We also do get one of the abuse types is threatening to call Department of Homeland Security or ICE to report the person for engaging in some conduct, like earning some money under the table or things like that. And so we do often see people hesitant to make a move to leave because their immigration status would be um, 
in jeopardy if they do that. Well, I think we've done everything. Thank you. Alex, can we see the answers, please? Or some of the answers. So most of them are we covered. Poverty, isolation, lack of credibility. Yes. Hope for change. You all had it spot on. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, I think what is not on the slide is I would, I always walk away saying, first of all, it's none of your business. When you take a client to represent them, the reasons they're in the situation, why they have not leave, left is never an appropriate question to ask. The point of the exercise was just so you have some sense of what people are saying. And these are not answers that we have or that we've gathered from our own clients. These are answers that are reported by some national studies that are just out there to be reviewed for folks who are interested. But ultimately, the answer is none of your business and nobody else's business. And so we would never ask. We would never question. We would never say, why did it take you so long? We would never tried to plant a seed that the person didn't do it at the correct time or didn't do it correctly or didn't do it the the best way or the way that we, we would have. So that's that's why survivors stay. Great. Next. So let's talk a little bit about the what you can expect when you are actually working with somebody who's been in these relationships. And so it's a, we do sometimes get cases where the parties have only been in the relationship for a short time. But the majority of cases we get are folks with children and people who've been in the relationship for some time. And so when somebody's in a relationship that is um, abusive for any extended amount of time, there typically are some traumatic impacts. And so the person will start to develop some behaviors. And so when a person comes into your office after having lived through maybe sometimes decades or a couple of years of this kind of treatment, the person may present as completely normal, whatever that means, you know, it's in, it's in quotes, um, maybe paranoid or distrustful. They may be angry, depressed, or hopeless. They may be terrified or not fearful at all. They might minimize the abuse. So one of the first cases I had in legal services when I was representing a client, maybe it wasn't one of my first, but anyway, quite early on, years ago, the person was telling me a story about how her partner had um, come to her house and drove up and was revving the engine and threatening, calling them to come out. And she said, I wasn't scared. I just went out with my gun. That is definitely an abusive relationship. And just because the person had a means to defend themselves does not mean that they were not being abused. Or we'll hear clients say, oh, I just no big deal. I just sleep with a knife under my pillow or I just keep my mace on hand or I got a license to carry mace or, you know, all these things that people are doing to protect themselves. Minimizing the abuse. Oh, it wasn't that bad. It was just one time or two times or, you know, there was probably something I did to deserve it. And so you might get some people that you're hearing the stories and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, that is a lot. But I want to invite you to consider that a person who is living in a situation like this day in and day out does have to make some sort of a peace and have to make themselves get through the day, pick up their kids, get their groceries, get the laundry done. And so one of the coping mechanisms for having to put up with this is sometimes making it feel smaller so that it's a little bit more manageable so the person can get through the life they need to live. Um, so the person might be distracted or hyper-focused. So 
you might say one word and somehow it becomes the entire topic of the conversation or the client may really want to talk about one incident or one event where you might have a lot that you'd like to cover during the interview, um, but it's difficult to kind of wrangle the client and focus them on that. Um, the person may be organized or hyper-organized or withdrawn or hyper-vigilant. And so this list is a little bit, anyway, does anybody notice anything about this list? I've not quite figured out a great way to do the slide. Anything that sticks out to you about this slide, this, these slides? So the person may be completely normal, maybe distrustful, maybe hopeless, angry, depressed, all these things. Um, if there's anything that jumps out at you about the behaviors on this list, please go ahead and throw them out. And if nothing pops out, that's okay. It just means I did a bad job with, with the slide. Give it a sec. So Lola, what stands out to me is that there's quite a wide range of responses to trauma listed here. Absolutely. That's the that's the unifying factor. Folks are presenting any way that they need to when they come to your office. And so I think in movies, there is a way for people to present. And so as attorneys, we might be expecting somebody very timid or shaky or I don't know. I don't even want to speak power to what I see on movies about folks who are going through traumatic incidents involving domestic violence. But People will present the way they need to present. So people, your client may be very gregarious, maybe very shy, maybe very outgoing, maybe very reserved, may have all the things that you need right as you need them, may not have anything that you need, even though you've asked multiple times. Um, also, there's a quite quite a wider range in the emotional state of people. And one of the things that happens when folks are experiencing trauma is a loss of ability to really manage. Um, emotions. So people may be hyper, right? A lot of things there are hyper. The person may be very distressful. And it's very difficult to find middle ground and equilibrium when your brain has really been going through these traumatic instances where you constantly have to renegotiate how you perceive the world and how you understand yourself and how you understand your own safety. Um, so that's basically it. Let me just see if anybody... Oh, okay, great. Um, somebody said, thank you. Trauma can present in so many ways and no one person reacts the same. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. I think we're ready for the next slide. And I'm going to try to move myself along here because I want to take all of um, Alex's time. So what does that mean for your relationship um, and how you're going to be able to work with this client? Do keep in mind that this will impact the way you gather facts. This will impact how you work with your client and this will impact how you feel about your client. So we're all people and it's important to keep in mind our own biases. If I may speak for us as a group, as attorneys, we kind of like things the way that we like them. They must be organized in a certain way. And I'll even give a very small example. Our time is valuable. Not that anybody's time is not, 
But if we're billing and we're doing this pro bono or we're doing it, even if we're paying, we really can't be super flexible with the time. But I invite you to consider that the person who has been going through these events may be late for reasons, including that they have difficulty managing their own time, difficulty managing bus schedules. They may be living in an isolated area and have difficulty with public transportation. And so just keeping in mind when a person shows up, I think sometimes my trained response is this person does not respect how much I have to do and they don't get that I have to move on after this meeting. Consider that it's really part of um, the trauma. Yeah, Lola, on this issue, uh, we'll talk about, you know, interviewing your client in a minute. Um, but I find that one really important thing to do is you get on the, the call or in person with your, your client the first time. It's really important to, at the end of that, say, look, if anything comes to your mind over the next day or so, let me know. Because they, they almost never think of everything in that first meeting and these cases happen, you know, really quick. It can turn around in a couple of days. So it's important to make yourself available because they'll remember different things at all different times. And a lot of the time you get a lot of the most important facts after meeting with them face to face, they'll, they'll think of something off the top of their head and they'll, you know, shoot you an email or something. And that's an important part of gathering facts for these cases. Thank you, Alex. Also, there's a gray box in the middle of my screen. I don't know if others see it. Are we able to? Thank you. Okay. Um, next slide, please. So your DV clients are similar to your non-DV clients in that their, their legal problem does not define them. Who they are and what they have going on expands far beyond what the reason is for them being in your office. They are entitled to your respect. They may have a different education than you. They may have a different income than you. They may have a different religious background than you. Um, but they deserve your respect in the same way that a paying client would. Um, they're seeking your help to understand the law and the system. So this is a big one in that, especially if our client doesn't speak English very well, um, the WBF provides interpreting services. So there should be very little issue in representation for that purpose. But sometimes we feel like we should just cut corners and don't explain everything in the way that we would for our non-DV clients and or that we will overwhelm them. The truth is they do, they tell us that they do find it helpful to understand what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how the system exactly works, what will happen after the restraining order lapses, what should they do beyond the restraining order, so it is important to have those conversations with, with them the way that you would with anybody else. Um, also important that they know their lives best. And so the way we see that sometimes is the client will change their goals or they will decide they don't want to go forward right now. And they may have to make a decision about their own safety that is different from what you had talked about with them um, before the case started. So. How are they just a little bit unique? The nature of the facts to be gathered are very sensitive. And so people may cry in your office. They may have a difficult time going into details and you may have to ask some questions that are uncomfortable for you and uncomfortable for them to answer. Um, you'll also keep in mind the impact of the trauma. And so as 
Alex and I have just talked about is they're going to remember the information in different ways. It'll come in drifts and drabs. They may have to contact you a little bit later and something may come to them in the middle of the night and they might have to just call you the next day. Um, you are also working against biases and victim blaming. So that I think that says what it needs to say. Um, the inadequacy of the legal remedies to fix the problem. So I don't think most legal remedies fix somebody's problem, but especially in this situation, right? If the person was in a relationship where they expected it to last until they die, if they're married, or expected certain outcomes, the fact that they are in your office seeking this assistance means that something has changed very drastically, right? So whatever happens, a restraining order is not going to fix what they thought that the rest of their lives was going to be. It's not going to take care of what their view of their marriage was going to be, right? And so part of the conversation about your with your client might end up being, well, we can do what the court is able to do and provide the relief that the court has the authority to provide, but this will by no means fix everything. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as advocates as well, right? Because sometimes I think we think, well, I'm doing this amazing thing and this person is going to be all set for my intervention. And the reality is that it's just not true. The problems and the issues will um, continue. And Alice will talk a little bit about how you can support folks with referrals beyond what you're able to do because what we can do is so small. And we've talked about all the issues that clients may have um, coming into your office, um, but keep that in mind. Uh, keep, winning in court does not necessarily mean that your client will be happy. It might be devastating. If winning does not, you, you might not get a client who's dancing out of the courtroom. I promise you won't ever have a client who's dancing out of the courtroom. Sorry, Alex, I'll take the next slide. All right, so painful, embarrassing, and sensitive facts. Yeah, we've talked about those, um, that the things you're gonna have to talk about are things that most people only talk about with their very close friends or family members. Um, your client may be slow to develop trust with you, and uh, it might take a little while to warm up to you. Um, I would recommend having a kind of a more gentle approach when your client first meets you just knowing that they may not want to disclose everything right away until they actually understand that you are there for them and you are there on their side. Because it may have been years since somebody believed them, understood them, and listened to them. Um, there are few witnesses and other corroborating evidence or claims. So it's few is generous. I think I've never seen a client who had witnesses or corroborating evidence. Every once in a while, we'll get text messages that are helpful with screenshots and we can get them into the case. But the difficult part of this kind of abuse is that it's happening behind closed doors. And so mostly nobody's seen anything. And the standard of the court is not that they have witnesses or have actual hard evidence. It, the standard is quite different. We'll get into that. But you'll almost never have somebody who has seen what's happened. And even if you do, I've never seen a witness willing to take a day off of work or from their lives to come into court and serve as a witness. So the case that you make is going to have to go forward without, without corroborating evidence, mostly. Um, the clients may change their goals, right? So the client decided they were going to leave this time and they were not going to come back. And then they were looking for an apartment. Somebody thought there was a place they could move to, but that place fell through and they don't have childcare. Their car is still not up and running. 
And so they decided to just put a hold on it for now. Um, sometimes the client decides to just seek therapy or seek different ways of supporting themselves before they take any legal action. Um, the client may disengage. That's pretty much like changing goals. So if the client just disappears, we just let clients know that if they change their goals or disengage or change their minds, we will be here and they can call us next time. There's never a reason to make a person feel like they're doing the wrong thing by not moving forward in the moment that they try to engage with you. Um, so I guess the difference, one of the differences between disengage and change the goals is that the client might start with saying they never want to see this person ever again. They don't want them anywhere near their children or things like that. But as the case progresses, they might change their minds and feel like they might be willing to give the defendant an opportunity to spend time with the children under certain circumstances, or they may decide that they will modify the order in some ways to allow more contact or contact in different ways. And the court will have something to say about those things as well. Um, so safety concerns are always big. Um, we don't do a ton of safety planning in our office because we're just not super trained on that. But we do recommend that if you're working with somebody who's got active safety concerns, to call Women's Bar Foundation and we can make a referral to an agency that does a lot of safety planning. That is a tool and a skill that many legal, that many non-legal advocates have. And so it's important to keep that in mind. If you're hearing concerns about actual physical safety, um, there should be some steps taken to refer that person to get more support. We're always using a client-centered approach. It's really following the client's lead. The client will know how the opposing party is likely to react when they're served, likely to react um, upon getting the news, likely to react when they go pick up their stuff. And so if the client says, we've got to do it slowly, we're doing it slowly. If the client says we should file soon, I mean, all within reason based on your schedule and availability. But really, if the client wants to change their mind or wants to put the case off till later, we're absolutely doing that. Um, it doesn't have to be you who keeps representing the client so that you're not retained for years but we will work with the client to put the case on hold if that's necessary. Um, consider the options versus giving advice. So clients will ask you, especially where if it's been quite a long relationship and they're finally starting to make the decision, they will really want some support from you or encouragement or some indication that what they're doing is the right thing. It is not appropriate for an attorney or an advocate to be the one giving the advice. We will never tell somebody, oh, yeah, it makes sense to leave. Now is the best time because X, Y, Z reasons. Ultimately, the person is the one who has to leave, live with whatever decision they make. And so if somebody's really insistent on, well, do you think now is a good time? Do you think, how do you think this will work out? Just be very clear with them on what the options are. So if they do leave, you can help them get the order. They will have to find housing, list out, even if some of the things that they'll have to do are challenging, really list out what some of the options are versus letting them feel like somehow you hold the key to the decision they need to make because if ultimately you give advice on what they should do and they do something different, they're going to feel terrible. They're not going to trust you and they will resent having come to your office in the first place. And so in the future, when they want to make a different choice, they will have a different time seeking assistance. 
Um, let the client take the lead. I think I've said basically that. Involve the client in all matters, just like everybody else, right? You would not enter into an agreement with the opposing party or opposing counsel without involving your client. So I have had cases where I'm representing a client and the defendant in the case is represented or not represented and they'll approach or they'll be in touch and say, I agree not to contact them. I agree to X, Y, Z. If we can agree that I'm going to be able to see the kids at least, or if we can agree that I can at least have FaceTime. And of course you will not agree to that until you consider the needs of your client and consult your client. So even if it feels like, oh, that's amazing. He's agreeing to all these things and we don't even have to go to court. Um, you just wanna make sure that this is actually what your client wants. Respect the client's decision about how much information to share. So this is especially important. I mean, it's important in the entire cases, but especially in the cases that involve some sort of sexual abuse or a sexual coercion, these are open cases and your client should be aware that anybody from their neighborhood, especially if they're in the district courts, anybody could potentially read the file and see what's going on um, in their relationship. And so you really want to take your client's lead. If your client wants to put every bit of detail about the incident and how they felt into their affidavit and file it with the court. That is their option. For some people, it feels healing and it feels like they're getting a chance to be heard finally. But for a lot of people, it feels embarrassing or uncomfortable to have to put all of that on paper and have a judge read it or look at it in open court and then potentially ask questions about their sexual conduct in a courtroom. So you just really want to follow the the lead of the client on that um, and empower the client to make decisions. The question for that is always, well, what do you think? You know, in the way that we learn to coach generally, right? The client says, so do you think now is the best time to leave? And an appropriate response is, well, what do you think? How would you, how that make, make you feel? How will your kids feel about it? Does that, would that bother you? You know, things like that. And eventually they'll come up to their own decisions about it and they'll hopefully be able to live with whatever decision they've made. These are for you specifically as the volunteer or an attorney who's working on these cases. It is very difficult to witness suffering. And so once you hear these cases over and over, take care of yourself. The legal system cannot make someone safe. And so we are very clear with our clients that we are getting these restraining orders. However, they are not bulletproof vests and they don't come accompanied with a police officer or a bodyguard. And so one of the conversations that is important to have, depending on your client's understanding of the process and what their needs are, is to be clear that this is not going to always keep them safe. Um, they may have to have other different kinds of interaction, especially if they're children that are still co-parenting. There may be different interactions between the parties and the court may not always be able to intervene. The legal system can re-traumatize your clients. So the person has to tell their story multiple times to multiple different people in different settings. And I think there's sometimes this understanding that especially for our lower income clients, that um, they are used to being in courts, that they are court involved. They've been there. They've done that, which is absolutely not true. A lot of times your client's appearance in court on this matter will be like the first and only time that they're in court. And so it is difficult to go into court to ask for safety and protection for yourself 
Meanwhile, especially in the district court, there are folks sitting with handcuffs or police officers, and they're telling their story in front of all these strangers, some of whom may live in their same street. And so the legal system can potentially be traumatizing. And so we just want to make sure that you and your client are prepared for that. Reach out early and reach out often. Oh, sorry, please. Lola, I just wanted to add, you know, I've had cases where, you know, every time you talk to your client about it, they end up really upset crying. So you you actually have to kind of balance, okay, how much do you want to put your client through preparing for this versus um, you you kind of have to just gauge like, you know, okay, I think we've got enough preparation to get through this. I'm not going to put my client through any more preparation because it's really traumatic for for them. Um, So it's it's worth considering. And I think your next I'll just say one last thing. Um, Reach out early and reach out often. You'll have a mentor. Ask them questions. Let them know what you need. If you need something beyond what your client, what your um, mentor can offer, reach out to Women's Bar Foundation or anybody. Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers is amazing at supporting people doing very difficult work. So I'm just going to put in plug for them generally. If you're feeling like you need support around your work or and especially work with domestic violence survivors, reach out to them, reach out to us, reach out to anybody who you think could be helpful because we want you to stay well and healthy and keep doing this work for quite a long time. And with that, I'll turn it over to Alex. All right. Uh, Thank you, Lola. Um, So my name is Alex Hornat, um, and I suspect the reason I was uh, invited to speak with you today is because uh, I was in your shoes five years ago in one of these trainings. And since I've gone on to uh, take on a bunch of these cases, um, and I found it really rewarding and, and helpful. So I, I'm an uh, attorney at McCarter in English. I, I practice IP litigation and business litigation. So this is not my you know normal practice area. Um, so you know you guys can do it too, your attorneys, if you feel like you want to get into court, um, this is a good way to do it. And it's a good way to obviously help people who are really in need. And, and there's a need for attorneys to take these cases. So um, with that, let's get into the nuts and bolts of these cases. So um, Mass uh, ch- Chapter 209A um, defines what abuse is. So abuse can be attempting to cause or causing physical harm placing another in fear of imminent serious physical harm, causing another to engage involuntarily in sexual relations by force, threat, or duress. So all of those um, different types of abuse that we just talked about with Lola, um, for, for these cases, they all have to be kind of boiled down into one of these definitions for, for these cases. So there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, but that's kind of that's what we're looking at, you know, from a statutory basis of what the court will consider abuse. Um, and 209A uh, does not apply to all relationships. This is a list of um, relationships that it applies to. So if you're married, you're residing together, um, related by blood or marriage, child in common, um, or a substantive dating or engagement relationship, um, which I guess there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Um, so it, it's again, it's this is a domestic 
abuse situation. This is not a um, like a, a this is not the law to tackle like a, a like a stalker type situation. That there's a different law for that, which we'll we'll cover. Um, yeah. So this is just a list of um, the different types of relationships. Oh, so here we are. Um, persons who are stalked, harassed, or sexually assaulted by a stranger. That's a different law. That's chapter 258E. So that's good to know um, if you're taking on these cases because it'll, it'll, it'll come up. To, it'll, it's good to know. It might not be covered by 209A, what you're hearing from your client, but it could be covered by another law. Um, so persons who are emotionally abused or harassed, but not rising to the level of causing fear. That's, that's a um, typical situation that you have to deal with in, in these cases. So um, you kind of make a judgment of whether what you're hearing is enough for, to qualify for abuse. And really it's, it, those situations come under subsection B, placing another in fear of imminent serious physical harm. So if there's not, if there's not like a threatened physical harm or actual physical harm or sexual abuse, then is the question is, is there a reasonable fear of imminent serious physical harm? Um, So jurisdiction, um, all mass state courts have jurisdiction of 209A cases. Um, uh, often they'll be in district court, um, sometimes probate court. Um, venue is restricted somewhat. Um, they can go, uh, the, the pro it's proper in the court having venue over the plaintiff's residence or if the plaintiff left a residence to avoid abuse, then they can uh, go back to where they used to live. I think part of that is so that they don't have to reveal where they went. So this is a list of um, the relief you can get in a chapter 209A case. So you can get an order uh, not to abuse someone not to contact someone that's usually a, a very key um, issue for people because you know generally people if, if you're scared of physical abuse that's already against the law so the no contact thing is is actually a really important one um, leave and stay away no contact with children custody issues can be decided in these cases um, child and spousal support can be decided, parenting time, surrender keys. Um, if you get an order, typically if the, if they were living together, the, the parties, uh, what will happen is, uh, that they'll order the police to escort the defendant to pick up their personal belongings at the, at the residence. Um, recovery of lost wages or other losses resulting from abuse. Address impounded, that's a really important one. Um, turning guns, that comes up a lot. Um, you know, you can 
although this is, I guess, a Supreme Court issue right now. Um, right now in Massachusetts, you can get uh, guns taken away. Uh, and recommendation for batterers intervention. So um, the way these 209A cases work is uh, typically uh, the plaintiff will go by the, themselves to the court, fill out an affidavit, explain what's going on, um, how they're being abused, and they'll get a temporary, a, a short-term 10-day uh, restraining order. So the police will serve that order. Um, it'll be in place for about 10 days, and then they'll have a date, uh, 10, usually around 10 days, to go back to court um, and kind of reprove their case on a more substantive basis. Um, when they go back after the 10 days, they can request up to a year of uh, restraining order. And then after that year is up, you can then request additional years or at, at that point, you can request a, a permanent restraining order. Um, and so typically, so here's preparing for the hearing. Um, so typically, um, the way these cases work is when I get them anyways from the from the Women's Bar Foundation is they've the client's gone in, they've gotten their 10 day and they've got a, a hearing date in the next you know week in the next five days, something like that. Um, and then you get an email from often Lola uh, kind of giving a brief description of the case, you know we, saying we nobody here can handle it. Can anybody there handle it? Um, so you contact the client, um, you review what documents they can provide you. Um, if there's a need for a, a court interpreter, a, a translator, you get that lined up. Um, prepare the client. Uh, we'll discuss this a little bit more in a minute. Uh, you draft supplemental affidavit or, or any motions needed. Um, prepare direct and cross-examinations, then you're representing the, the client at hearing. So this is just an overview of what you'll be faced with um, taking one of these cases. So, and we'll talk about all these issues uh, more in a minute. Um, referrals, this is something that Lola had mentioned. So you, you gotta do a little bit of issue spotting um, with your client. If they have issues that are outside the scope of the 209A case, um, reach out to the Women's Bar Foundation and say, hey, look, they've, they've got this other issue going on. Um, you know, I'm not the right person to help them with this, but let, let me know if you can help them with this um, because the, the Women's Bar Foundation has a lot of resources um, to figure out, you know, how to, how to help people. So, and enforcement, um, I guess that, refers to, you know, after you get um, an order, um, having it enforced. Generally, if you take on one of these 209A cases, I, in my experience, you won't be actually involved that much in that. Um, typically, when I take on one of these cases, I represent the client at the hearing and then uh, file my withdrawal right after. So if they want, if, if they need help the next year after, after the year-long 
order is in place, they, they can reach back out to us. So I, I'm typically not involved in the enforcement of the orders. Uh, but I guess the, the important point on enforcement is just to let your client know, make sure they understand the order, what's prohibited under the order so that they can, you know, reach out for help, contact the police if, if the order is violated. So um, let's talk about uh, the first client meeting. So typically you're gonna, like I said, get an email from Lola or someone at the Women's Bar Foundation with uh, just a, a very brief summary of what's going on. So you you call the client, you introduce yourself, you schedule a more substantive meeting either in person or uh, a lot of the time these cases, like I said, it's a, it's a 10 day turnaround. You might get the case you, you know, you might get the case and two days later have to be in court. That's happened to me before. So sometimes you can't meet in person, especially since COVID. Um, I've been doing a lot more of the uh, meetings by video conference. So that that might be necessary. Um, a lot of the time just to, you know, prepare the client or get, get information from them, you need to get a translator. Um, so um, Lola, do you guys have resources for that? Um, I know I've been able to get translators through my law firm. Uh, maybe people would have that access. But can you speak to? Yeah. Yeah, we have. Um, we hire an interpreter. Uh, it is a telephonic interpreter, so it's not a person who comes to the meeting. But they're very good and pretty easy to find um, through their phone so there's no need to make an appointment or anything and women's bar foundation has an account and we just pay for that so that's totally covered for the meeting between the attorney and the client outside of court but the courts also have interpreters so for the court date we don't have somebody but attorneys can request a court interpreter for that day great um yeah and you really want to nail down with the court clerk that there will be a translator there um, because, uh, you know, I've been told before, okay, yep, we'll make a note of it. And then I, I call back in the day before and, oh, we have no note of that. So it, it's worth checking on several times because you know, the last thing you want is to drag your client into court and then there's not a translator there. And it, it's a traumatic experience a lot of times just for them to show up to court and they might see their abuser there. So you want to make sure things run smoothly, get the translator, the interpreter lined up, uh, make sure they're going to be there. I'll also add, this is not your job, but it will be very helpful if you're, if for some reason your client and the opposing party speak a different language and you think they're going to need an interpreter, just go ahead and request one. I'm not sure how people communicate, but I've certainly had people who they can chat together and for years they're together. But for court purposes, for example, somebody might need a Cape Verdean Creole interpreter, but their partner really needs a Portuguese interpreter. And so to the extent that you can keep the case moving forward, just make sure to have both interpreters available. Just request one for the opposing party as well. It's free to do. That's a great point. Um, okay, so you wanna make sure the uh, when you're meeting with your client, the space is private. Uh, especially in, in video conferences, <laughs> a lot of the times I'll, you know, think we're talking 
just us. And then I'll see some, you know, a, a family member wander by in the background and I got to remind them about issues of privilege and, and whatnot. So it's important to make sure you're in a private space. Um, if you have a colleague with you, you want to explain why they're there. This is all about trust and um, it's important for them to feel comfortable with you and everyone that they're, you know, divulging very sensitive information to. Um, yeah, and again, if the, the client brings others, you got to explain privilege issues um, and make a call on whether that other person needs to be there. I'm actually going to skip ahead to this one. So, all right. So you've had the client meeting, you've kind of figured out what's going on. Um, now you've got to prepare for the hearing. So um, you'll want to draft a, a notice of appearance in the case. Um, that's important. Uh, you can get away with not doing it. I, I've got I've gotten away with not doing it, but I've also gotten burned by not doing it because I've ha I've had a case where I didn't file my notice of appearance. I would plan to just show up and and uh, represent the client, and the opposing party's attorney had a conflict on the date of the hearing. They didn't know to get in touch with me ahead of time, so my client and I show up. For the hearing and then we're informed there that you know then it's not going forward because the other side can't be there uh if i had drafted my notice of appearance then maybe they would have been able to get in touch with me so it's important to do um you want to review the key cases especially when you're you're new to these you want to kind of have an idea of the case law um prepare a supplemental affidavit so as i discussed when the the client goes in the first time into the courthouse, they're going to fill out a, an affidavit explaining, you know, what abuse they're suffering. Um, but that might not cover everything that's going on. So once you talk to the client and you get an idea of what the abuse is, what what's going on, you want to review the initial affidavit. And if it doesn't cover everything, if it misses key points, um, you might need to um, prepare a supplemental affidavit. We'll we'll cover that a little bit more in a minute. Um, you want to gather, organize, make copies of any evidence. So this is your, you know, we're attorneys. This is where you get to decide how to present the case. Um, it, if a lot of the time, as Lola mentioned, a lot of the times there's not going to be a ton of documentary evidence, um, but it's worth it's worth probing with the client what what they have. A lot of times they might surprise you. Um, you know, if, are there photos of you all beat up in the hospital? Uh, that that's something you you want to get on the record um, if if they're comfortable with it. Um, if there's other witnesses, again, something to probe. With the client, is, is there anyone who knows about what's been going on that would be willing to come with you to court and, and help you out? Uh, those are questions worth asking. A lot of the times it's, it's not going to be the case that there's anyone, but it's it's worth, worth uh, preparing. And also analyze any financial information. As we discussed, you can get support 
um, in these cases. So th those are another issue to flag. So that's all, this is all um, materials to prepare. Um, so when you're going into court, you'll Can I add a note about, sorry, Alex. Yeah. Can I add a note about, can you go back to the, the previous yes. slide, please? Uh, this is a practice tip. I don't have wisdom or I don't have a you must or you shall not, but certain things I'd recommend keeping in mind are related to offering medical records. Um, sometimes it makes it easier for the defendant to attack the client about certain things if they're producing evidence that might be protected under certain other criteria. And specifically, I'm talking about medical records and mental health records. So sometimes the client will say, well, I have a history of seeking counseling because of this abuse. And you just want to really want to make sure with your client that they want to introduce that evidence because we do see just as often as not where the defendant will say, well, see, I told you she was crazy. I didn't do that. She's been crazy from whatever country she came from. She just brought all that with her. And same with medical records because those are not discoverable. And so if the client is, especially sometimes around like reproductive health, they'll say, well, look at how many times I've had to seek interventions because of things that the abuser has done to me. You just want to be really careful that they really want to introduce that because once it's introduced, then the defendant can use it for whatever purposes to further abuse your client and paint a picture of them as an untrustworthy, unreliable um, narrative. So just a note about certain kinds of evidence. And another point to raise there is you know, sometimes the court will have time for you that day and, and let you put on whatever you want to put on. But more often, they're um, kind of rushing you to get on with the case. And a lot of that, a lot of that type of evidence is going to probably be the overkill from what they're asking for. Anyways, if you're looking to get into line by line medical records, I, in my experience, the courts pro more often than not, not going to let you spend time on the, on that type of stuff. So um, we have, a, I just realized there's a couple of questions. Um, so number one, in your experience, are 10 day temporary orders ever denied? Um, I've heard of that, um, but by the time I get the case from Lola, it's, it's they've been accepted or I'm representing someone who's already gotten a restraining order for a year. Lola, you probably can speak better to that. Um, yeah, um, they are denied sometimes. And I thank you for asking that. I kind of want to talk about it in a bigger context is relative to how our clients are perceived by the court and others. Um, there is this narrative that anybody can go into court and just get a restraining order. But the truth is the courts take these re restraining orders very seriously. So a 2098 order is the most restrictive that a court can be in a civil case. So limiting somebody's civil rights to go certain places and contact certain individuals, the courts do take it very seriously. The court is not inclined to just issue ex parte orders without hearing from the other party. Um, unless there's an actual showing of fear of eminent physical harm based on some sort of a pattern or something like that. So they are, I don't want to go too deep in the weeds, but we can talk about it offline. But the answer is yes, they are sometimes. 
um, denied. Unfortunately, there's no legal service that I'm aware of that represents people in them, though I wish there were. Um, so I think it's always helpful to have an attorney help with the ex parte order if possible, but I'm not aware of a program that would actually do that. Typically, folks are going in and telling their story from their heart and just writing what's most fresh for them and what's most painful for them to tell. And the court is just listening to that and making the order based on that. Okay, and then we have another question on venue. Um, so if a client lived in Cambridge with her abuser, but since re relocated to Springfield, can she file for a 29A restraining order out of Springfield District Court? Um, I think the answer is yes, because that's where they live um, now. So you can file where you live. I yeah. Think, yeah. That's, um, that's correct. And we yeah. would, uh, well, there are reasons why they might not want to. They can, absolutely. And one of the reasons we might counsel against that is because is if the abuser is aware of the address in Cambridge and does not realize the person's moved to Springfield, filing in Springfield may tip them off to the fact that the person has relocated. But if they're aware of that already for different reasons, then it's not as big a concern. But if somebody is asking for advice at that stage, you might just want to mention there might be a reason to just get it in Cambridge, even if they've moved. But Cambridge and Springfield are quite far apart. So I understand why somebody would not want to litigate in Cambridge and they have to travel back to Springfield. And then we have another question on the rules of how the ev rules of evidence are typically applied in these cases. Um, from my experience, I, and I'll talk about this more in a minute, you, you really don't know what you're going to get from any, procedurally or substantively when you're walking into one of these hearings. Um, Sometimes the court will just review the affidavits on file and then want to ask the client um, some questions herself. Or sometimes they'll say, okay, you know, what, what's your direct exam? Um, so you, you don't really know what you're going to be faced with. Um, but th there is case law to the effect that the rules of evidence don't have to be strictly applied. So the, the court will typically consider, you know, they'll make leeway on, on hearsay issues and and whatnot um but uh so yeah there is some leeway there on on, on evidentiary issues but in, in general you, you don't really know um you got to pre prepare for any circumstance because you, you again you don't know how much time the court's going to give you on on these hearings or, or how it's going to go forward I'll add to that, um, the evidence issues, they depend on the type of evidence because you do need to have authenticated materials that are written, but the testimony of the client is not, you know, it doesn't meet the same. So if the client says, I received a letter and it made me feel afraid, unless they're trying to enter the letter into evidence, then that testimony can be admitted. But I think if you're trying to admit written documents, then the courts are going to really want to see that it's actually from who you said it is from, that it's from when you said it is from what, you know, things like that. So I guess it depends on the nature of the evidence. The court understands that these cases are so close to the vest for most people that they'll take testimony a little bit more fluidly than they might in different cases. So if they want, if the client has somebody who wants to speak, for example, as a witness, they don't have to be like, 
an expert in domestic violence. It don't have to be somebody who, you know, things like that versus. Um, and so the court will listen to that testimony, but the court is not inclined typically in my experience to just admit, for example, medical evidence without some sort of showing that it's actually. I hope that was yeah, helpful. So the answer is it depends. <laughs> it depends. Yeah. Um, all right. We got one more question. If a victim lives with the abuser under a lease in the abuser's name, after a restraining order is issued, who moves out, the abuser or the victim? Um, that's a, I, I haven't faced that specific issue. I've, I've had cases where there, there was co-ownership of the property and the obviously the abuser moved out in that situation. Lola, have you ever faced a situation where? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, all the time. Um, the person who's got the restraining order, so the plaintiff would get to stay. It is a different conversation to have about who is now responsible for the rent in that apartment. And so that's going to depend a lot on the relationship. So if the parties are married and they rent, there is space on the restraining order to ask, even if the opposing party is asked to vacate or the dependent rather, that they continue to continue to help pay towards the rent. That might be different if the parties have been dating for maybe two years with no duty to support or no relationship. I don't know if the court is as inclined to do it in that situation, but certainly if the parties are married, generally what we do is ask the court to have the defendant vacate and have them continue to support paying the rent. Okay. All right, so you've prepared your case. Um, you're ready to go into court. So this is kind of a list of materials you, you should have. So the client file, including the complaint, the initial affidavit, and the temporary order. Um, any supplemental affidavits uh, with four, four copies of those. A legal memo, if appropriate. Um, one thing I always ask the client is, uh, what's the other side going to say? Because they they know the other side usually really well. Um, sometimes they've been through these hearings before if you're representing someone on an extension hearing. So generally they know what the other side, what their argument's going to be. And if that's the case, you can, you can, you know, do some research and a lot of times find case law on, you know, why, why that's not a good argument. So that, a legal memo might be appropriate in that type of situation. Um, any, Documentary evidence, four copies of each, one for court, one for the other side, one if you have to put it in front of your client, one for you. Um, 209 statutes and any other relevant case law. Um, financial materials if, if you're going to be seeking support. And any family probate orders if those types of issues are involved. Um, These are some um, resources uh, to once you're taking these cases that you might want to consult. Um, you're gonna we're gonna get this slideshow to you um, at some point after the presentation, so feel free to consult these resources. Um, okay, so let's talk more about um, the supplemental affidavit. So. As I discussed, the, the, the client fills out the initial affidavit, but 
they do so under it can be hectic situation when they go into the court all by themselves. Um, they're under a lot of pressure, so you don't always know, you're not always going to get the full story in that affidavit. They often leave out really important facts. Um, so it might be important to file a supplemental affidavit. So why do that instead of um, just prepare a direct examination on the additional facts? Well, um, as I discussed, you, you never totally know how these hearings are going to go. Sometimes the court will let you put on a full direct. Sometimes they'll just ask the questions. Uh, sometimes they'll let you do a direct, but then cut you off. Um, and let the defendant say their piece. And then, you know, it, it can go any number of ways. So, but one thing they typically do is they call you up. And the first thing they do is sit there and read the affidavits, the, the file for a couple minutes. So it, a supplemental affidavit can be a pretty sure way to get the facts into the record and before the court, because um, you, don't, you don't totally know how these hearings are going to go. Um, it also may, you know, it's a, maybe a good way to strategically to limit the amount of testimony you need to get from your client. If you don't think they're going to do a great job or they're really nervous and you don't want to put them through, um, a lot of direct examination in, in, uh, court, then that might be a way to get that, you know, evidence in the record. Um, you know, it's a, it's just a good way to present the issues in a focused way. Um, it can be part of, it'll be part of the record for appeal. Um, and it's also worth keeping in mind if you, your client's facing criminal proceedings, maybe, you know, you got to be careful of what you're going to have them saying in affidavit. Um, so these are the contents of, you know, what you might put in an affidavit, just the basics, uh, age of the survivor, history of the relationship, overview of the abuse, um, detailed account of specific instances of abuse. The most recent ones, um, put them up front. Those are the most important, typically. Um, prior restraining orders any substance abuse problems by the defendant, um, any criminal history, basis for reasonable fear. So spell out, if, if this isn't a case of physical, uh, sexual abuse or you know, actual physical abuse, you wanna spell out what, what the fear is based on. Why is your client telling you she is fearful um, that she's gonna be physically abused? Um, and if there's spousal support issues or, or child support issues, you want to explain those as well, obviously. Um, you want to make sure that you're not conflicting, uh, that the, the, the supplemental affidavit doesn't conflict with the original affidavit, or if you feel that it has to, you want to be able to explain that. Um, Again, focus on the statutory definition of abuse when you're, if you're drafting a supplemental affidavit. Uh, actual or threatened physical abuse, uh, reasonable fear of imminent serious physical harm or uh, sexual abuse. 
Uh, keep it short and simple if, if you can. Uh, again, the, the judges, they, they understand these issues a lot of time, but they have a really full docket. And a lot of times they're, they're rushing to get you in and out. So um, so uh, strategically, you may want to use the, um, the supplemental affidavit to deal with bad facts. Um, it's, it's, it's a judgment call. Um, another way to, you know, like I said, you, you're always going to ask your client, what's the other side going to say? Um, and a lot of the time, a lot of the time you'll hear a lot of nonsense back, a lot of victim blaming is, is in almost every case I've, I've taken, there's been victim blaming and that that's always going to come up. And so if, if there is like an, an issue of victim blaming, a, a decision to make is, okay, am I going to bring that up proactively and then they can cross-examine her on it? Or should I not bring it up and just object to it if they try to bring it up? So those are, you know, strategic decisions you'll have to make. Uh, Lola, did you have something? Yeah, along those lines. Absolutely right. Is uh, you at least want to be aware of what the bad facts are, and bad facts are in quotes because our clients are just people. So what's happened to them or what they've done is just what people have done. But you do want to at least be aware of what some of these things would be. So a very straightforward question. Well, a question, a good question to ask your client is, what's the worst thing this person can say about you? And it does, just like Alex says, it inevitably will be blaming your client for what's happened to them by the person who's done it to them. Um, but there may be things you want to be mindful of. Um, so some specific examples I think of, our clients are not perfect people and they make mistakes as well. And so please don't expect that we're, by sending you a case we are attesting that this person is an angel who's never done anything that was questionable or different than decisions that we may have made for ourselves. Um, and I'm thinking about use of substances. Um, it is not uncommon for our clients to have some dependence on substances, alcohol, drugs, prescribed or otherwise. Um, and so when they are medicating with these things or using them the ways that they're using them, that is something that often comes up and you just want to at least know if that's something that your opposing party or the defendant is going to bring up about why it was okay that they sexually assaulted them or why it was okay that they sometimes put them in a dark room and lock the door for their safety, things like that. Um, you may also, so another thing that sometimes comes up for our clients who are from cultures where men and women aren't in the same space unsupervised, it may become a situation that you have to negotiate. Do you want to bring that up if the client's family doesn't realize the reason that they have found themselves in this situation is because they're doing something that is forbidden or taboo in their culture or their community anyway. Like, are you disclosing something that's going to further isolate the person by disclosing to their community? Um, so dealing with the bad facts does mean kind of going after what the opposing party or defendant may say, but it also means considering the impact of that disclosure on the client outside of your case. So I wouldn't just throw everything at the at the door, really be considerate and mindful about what that's going to mean for them going forward. 
Yeah. Um, so, all right, moving forward, um, you can attach evidence to a supplemental affidavit. That might be a, an easy way to get um, documents into evidence and before the court. Um, and finally, you want to review the affidavit carefully with your client just to make sure it's accurate. Um, and taking a step back, there are cases where, you know, I'll get the the original affidavit my client filed and I'll say, you know, she nailed it. We don't need anything more than this. We're going to go into court um, and do a direct examination, prepare a direct examination. But I, I don't feel that a supplemental affidavit's needed. It, it, you know, she, she nailed it. So those cases do happen, but sometimes you do need to file a, a supplemental affidavit if there's really key issues that were totally missed. I'm a fan of doing the supplemental affidavit even if I don't end up filing it. So the times that we see the clients have really nailed it, typically they've worked with an advocate and that person's involved. And in that case, I agree, don't bother. But it is a good practice if you have any questions that are have been left off and the person's not working with an advocate and didn't quite cover everything. Um, and I think in the previous slide, it says, be mindful of parallel criminal cases. And just a note on that is that it's not infrequent for a survivor to have a criminal case brought against them for defending themselves or for finally lashing out after they've endured many years of abuse. Um, and so in that case, you may not want to actually file the affidavit, but I find that it's at least helpful to guide me when I follow that list that's on the previous slides about like making sure I know the age of the client, making sure I understand if they have any disabilities, making sure I understand about their financial situation, if they have children, how old the kids are. At least doing a draft for myself helps me prepare, even if I don't intend to to actually file it with the court. Okay, good point. And I would say, especially if, if you're just starting to do these cases, it might be a good idea to file a supplemental affidavit just in case um, something doesn't go right at court that day. Um, you know, you at least have that backup. Um, if you have a uh, limited English proficiency client, um, again, arrange the interpreter ahead of time. Um, and you know, there's an extra step there for an affidavit. You got to get a uh, interpreter cert certification, um, which um, I guess the Women's Bar Foundation can can help with. Um, so you've prepared your client, and now it's time to um, head to court. So it's you want to ask your client, okay, so how are you, how are you getting there? You know, you know where the courthouse is. Um, we're, let's meet at, you know, a half an hour ahead of time. Um, can be important to meet a half an hour ahead of, or ahead of time because first of all, you want to make sure they're there in time. Second of all, if you don't get there to the last minute, you might be rushing into the courthouse and going through security at the same time as the defendant, which might not be pleasant for your client. Um, so you just want to have a plan, a get, you know, a, a game day plan of, you know, what, where we're going to meet, when we're going to meet, how it's going to work. Uh, that'll give your client some comfort that, you know, things are under control and they're, they're going to go smoothly. Um, ask your client about what safety concerns they have. They, they know 
their life best so they can tell you what they're comfortable with what would be an issue um sit with your client in the courtroom um often i'll try to form a physical barrier between my client and the defendant so if they walk in you know you just make sure you're between them basically at all times all right so you're in court um first thing you do is you want to go to the clerk's office clerk's office because a lot can of I just, can yes. i just say one thing about sitting with your client i'm just gonna put a little bit of a highly encouraged if you're used to sitting in that little attorney area and your client is sitting by themselves in these cases my strong recommendation is that this case you don't sit up there and let your client sit by herself in the back of the room because you never know the opposing party may approach and start asking questions may be staring weird glances may try to intimidate so every other day if you prefer to sit up there good on you but on these hearings i would strongly encourage and if your client's getting a little nervous you can just check in do you need to get water do you want to go through? like if you're in the court for some reason you're waiting an hour they may need to use the restroom they may need to get a water they may need to just call whoever's watching their child and let them know they're going to be a little bit late and you just want to be able to like coach them through that so i strongly recommend that tiny bit of peace um, for your client on that day it'll be so helpful so helpful yeah, I totally agree. And let them know ahead of time that you're going to be there with them in the court the whole time. You're going to be physically between them and the defendant. Um, and yeah, it's it's typically a cattle call situation when you get to the court. So you can you can be sitting there for quite a bit of time. And if you're not sitting there next to your client, you know, things could happen. So. All right. So um, you arrive at the courthouse, go to the clerk's office to figure out what court you're in, because Typically, it, it, I mean, I've been to the same courthouse the last uh, three times in the last couple months for different restraining order cases, and it changes every single time which court we're, courtroom we're going to be in. So um, figure that out. If that's the opportunity when you uh, go to the court to go to the clerk to uh, file any supplemental affidavits that you have. Um, any financial documents that you think you're going to need for support issues. Um, and if you can find opposing counsel ahead of time, you can give them to them as well. Um, and yeah, wait in the court. And once you've handled that with the clerk's office, go to the courtroom, sit with your client and wait for the case to be called, which it can be called immediately. It can be called, you know, an hour or two later so you never know what to expect um so at the at a 10-day hearing so this is when your client's gotten the 10 the initial order and now you're going back to try to get a up to a year uh extension um you have to assume there will be a full evidentiary hearing so you've prepared direct examination again you don't know what's going to happen the court might just ask questions on their own of your client, but you obviously want to be prepared for all circumstances. So assume there will be a, a formal evidentiary hearing. Um, again, the judge may want to hear from you or they might want, want to just hear directly from your client. Um, it's a preponderance of the evidence standard under the Frazado case. Uh, I think that's the same case that also says that 
Um, the rules of evidence don't have to be um, strictly applied. Um, yeah, there it is. Um, and uh, the last point here is take charge of the hearing. Um, the judge might not have a lot of time for you, but it, it's important to get on the record the key evidence. So I've been in situations where I could tell the court really wanted to move things along, but you've got to stand up for your client. You've got to make sure the important stuff gets on the record, um, especially if you think there's any if you think there's any chance that the order is going to get denied. Um, you you got to get that stuff on the record and, uh, for an appeal. So uh, I've also had cases where, uh, actually, a, a hearing I had last week. Um, it was an extension hearing. So we got we went in. The court let me put on direct examination, but it was hurrying me up. And then about maybe a third of the way through it just turned to the defendant and said, all right, what do you have to say? Let the defendant speak for, you know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, say their part. And then just said, okay, I'm ordering three years. So in that case, I mean, there's not much <laughs> you can do. Um, but if, if there was, if there was, if there's any, in, in a case where the court doesn't take that charge and immediately grant it in, in your favor, you got to get the evidence on, do everything you can to get the evidence in. Um, again, if, if the worst case comes in and you're not granted an order, you, you got to have the record for, for appeal. Um, again, the judge will kind of tell you how they want the, the, the uh, hearing to proceed. And you're going to have to just be a little flexible sometimes and, and, and figure out, you know, how, how that goes. So you got to, you know, also it's important to let the client know that ahead of time. So you want to say, you want to let them know, we got to prepare this direct examination. It, you know, the court might just want to hear from you. Um, and if they do, you know, here are the important points to hit, you know. Uh, so let them know ahead of time that anything is kind of possible. Um, you also want to let the client know that they might be cross-examined. So if there's a direct exam, obviously the other side has an opportunity to cross-examine them. Um, but if if the defendant does not have a, a uh, attorney, you should object to them conducting an examination themselves. Um, again, the judge might just ask questions in that in that situation of the client um, instead of a cross examination from a defendant. And you know all, this goes without saying, but you don't want to be rude to the judge. You don't want to interrupt the judge. Um, so do what you can to get the record in without uh, being rude to the judge. Um, Cross-examination of the defendant, I, I think typically less is probably more in these cases. Um, I think I've only done one case where I thought it was necessary to cross-examine the, uh, the defendant, um, especially if you're in a situation where if the abuse is the, the plaintiff's reasonable fear of imminent serious physical harm, that you're making the case on their, their fear, uh, the your client's fear and the defendant might not have a, you know, a ton to 
say about that. So it might be better to just keep it focused on your client. Um, so less is more. Um, yeah, if, if the defendant is has a criminal case pending, they might just invoke the fifth and uh, not testify. Uh, case law says, I think it's again, the Frizzato case says that um, you can ask the judge to draw an adverse inference from that, from that, them invoking the fifth in these 2098 cases. So that's important to know. I have pretty good success. Um, I have pretty good success asking the court to do this, especially because we seldom have other evidence and it's really the word of your client and the defendant. And if the defendant is giving the court nothing to go on, I have had judges say explicitly, well, if there's nothing you want to say, then I guess I'm inclined to credit the plaintiff's testimony as full and complete and accurate. So it's it's important to, to ask. It might help you get out of a little bit of a jam because folks will sometimes just not want to cooperate and Often it's a criminal case, but sometimes just a different case um, related to their eviction or things like that. They just don't want to say certain things. And that's their right, absolutely. But the court can't just walk away from the hearing, not issuing an order because the parties didn't participate. So I would press for that. Uh, we have a couple questions. Um, how often is the denial of an extension order appealed are they expedited through the appeal process, for example, decided by a single justice, or are they subject to the traditional appellate procedural grounds? So I've um, I'll let Lola speak on this. I, personally, I, I have done one appeal, um, and it followed the regular process. Um, it was, I, I think the the my client just felt that she had been wronged by the judge and and wanted to put her case forward and wanted to know that she should be should have been entitled to and I, I, I thought she was right. Um, but if there are immediate safety concerns, like really serious immediate safety concerns, um, I, I would I say an appeal is probably not always the best option. I, I would say as soon as something new happens, it'd be better to try to seek another restraining order on that basis. Um, anything at all, if anything at all pops up um, that you can say is new, just have it, have them go back in. Uh, but Lola, what, what's your experience with the appeal process in these cases? I agree. Absolutely. We don't take appeals of these cases because we are not, we don't have an appellate practice attorney or experience. We would refer somebody who needs to appeal to the civil appeals clinic, which is run by a different nonprofit. Um, and they do great things. But to answer the question, aside from that, is there's no expedited process. It is the regular appeal process. Um, and Alex is 100% correct. Um, if for some reason you and or your client did not meet the burden at that hearing, then the recommendation would be to wait for something else. And hopefully it's not something that like ends up with the client irreparably harmed or killed. Um, but then what we would do is request the different restraining order after a new incident. 
Um, but if things are so dire that things are, that this is happening, hopefully this is not being denied at that process. It would be, I mean, it does happen, but my hope is that the courts are giving the clients the benefit and the credit they deserve, especially if they're represented by the council, um, to issue orders where the possibility for lethality is so high. But no no expedited process, nothing special that we're aware of. You just file in the regular course. Okay, and then there's another question. What grounds can you assert for objecting if a defendant themselves tries to con conduct cross-examination? Um, I actually haven't had this situation that either client's always been represented. I guess I would uh, object on, I guess, harassment grounds um, and just say, you know, Your Honor, this is a tough situation for my client. Would you, do you think you'd be able to conduct the examination instead of uh, the defendant? Um, Lola, do you have any thoughts on that? No, that's that's about right. And if you ever see a defendant cross-examine your client, it'll be very evident to you why you should object. And the judge may step in. It's partly because of the history of abuse and power and control, but also they don't know how to direct. So you'll get questions to your client, such as, isn't it true you lied last time I came home and dinner wasn't ready? That's not an appropriate way to cross-examine anyone. So it'll be pretty evident why you're objecting. Okay. I think we're getting towards the end of uh, our time here. Um, so let's see what more we can cover. Um, uh, 10 day, there might be other witnesses that you need to call. We discussed that um, on uh, other evidence. Again, evidence rules are not strictly applied. Um, police reports are often considered. So if, if if you have that, try to get it in. Um, Lola spoke about medical records, the, the issues that can that, that can be involved there. Um, at a 10-day hearing, you can uh, seek up to a one-year restraining order. So typically, you're going to want to ask for the, the full one year. Um, again, ask your client if that's what they want. If, if not, if they have some reason for wanting less, then I would follow that. But you know, let them know that they can get up to a year and, and ask them if that's what they want to do. In my experience, they want to get the max one year. Um, once you get, if you get the restraining order, you, you, you want to review it and make sure everything that's supposed to be there is there and, and bring it up with the judge if you think something's missing um, and inquire on the record if, if something is missing. Um, Uh, again, uh, the district courts have the authority to grant a request for custody or child support. Um, probate court, though, has jurisdiction over child-related matters. So um, if there's a divorce proceeding go going on and they have child support orders in, in, on the side, then typically the 209A case is not going to be able to do anything about that. And, and in my experience, the judge doesn't, if, if, the, if those issues are being handled somewhere else, they're, they're not even gonna get into it. Um, so a defendant, there, there are some instances where a defendant seeks a restraining order against the plaintiff as a means of retaliation. 
Um, so under 209A, there, there can be uh, mutual restraining orders. Um, in that case, there have to be written findings of fact by a court as to why uh, mutual order is needed uh, and instructions to law enforcement officers on how to determine who the primary abuser is. Um, so in those cases, you want to do your best to show that, you know, if the client acted in self-defense, if there was, uh, you know, mutual abuse um, or mutual physical uh, violence. Um, true mutual abuse situations are rare. As Lola covered, these relationships are extremely you know, tricky and, and complex and abuse is about power and control. So usually you want, instead of there being a mutual order, you want to be able to suss out and, and make clear to the court, no, my client needs this restraining order. She's the, she's the survivor here. And, and this is why. Um, if there are, you want to make sure you know from your client if if there's other restraining orders involved from other courts, you, you want to know about that and make sure the judge knows about that. Okay, so the other uh, cases you may be asked to take on is uh, where a, a client has already received a one-year restraining order and their date has come up for the next, that, that one-year date has come up and they want another year or they want a permanent uh, restraining order. So we get those cases a lot. Um, in that case, you really want to focus on the um, continuing need for the order. What has happened? Um, why Why does your client still need um, the, the restraining order, even though a year has passed? So it might be that the defendant violated the protective order. That's a pretty should be a pretty clear cut case um, of why an extension is needed. Um, if there's ongoing issues like custody issues or other litigation that where the parties have to be somewhat involved with each other and, and there's hostility because of that, you can explain that to the court. That could be a, you know, a basis for reasonable fear on your on behalf of your client as to why they, they could be physically abused. Um, Party's demeanor in court, that's something to point out. If they're demonstrative in court, then uh, that's something to point out. Um, again, likelihood that the parties will encounter each other. If they're you know, handing kids off um, on the weekend and they, they have to do that, that could be it. And then that's why your client is worried she's going to be abused because you know anything could happen during one of those handoffs situations. That, that could be something to point out um, at, at a re renewal hearing. Um, a, a renewal hearing is, is pretty similar to a 10 day. You wanna get, you go through the same client interview, um, decide whether a supplemental affidavit is needed. Um, so this is a really important point. Um, just because the restraining order if it's been in place for a year, just because that has been followed and it hasn't been it hasn't been broken in the last year, doesn't mean your your client doesn't get a another year. Uh, again, you have to turn back to what the definition of abuse is. If 
does your client have a reasonable fear of imminent serious physical harm? That's what it's that's what's going to determine um, whether your client gets another year under those circumstances. There's also case law um, to the effect that if, if your client has suffered actual physical abuse in the past, then there there's actually a more of a subjective standard in that situation. <clears throat> If their trauma, if they have such trauma from that physical or sexual abuse they um, had in the past, that they just need more time to essentially recover, need more time to just be left alone, uh, there's case law to the effect that that could be grounds for an extension, further extension as well. Um, but typically, courts do not want to revisit what the basis for the original. Um, uh, restraining order was. I, I got told just last week in a, at a hearing to move it along because, you know, my, my point was the horrific nature of the original abuse needed to be covered for the extension because that, that was the basis for why she was so scared still. But this court said, you know, why she, the court wanted me to get to, I want to hear, the court wanted to hear why that, the, that my client was still afraid and, and why. Um, so they didn't want me to cover the abuse again. So that, that's important to keep in mind. All right, so we made it. Um, let me see if there's any other questions. Um, you can ask the judge to consider a defendant's refusal to testify in 2098 hearings. However, if they have an accompanying, accompanying criminal matter and don't want to incriminate themselves, wouldn't the judge understand why they would choose that? So um, the case law says if the if the defendant pleads the fifth, they uh, there can be an adverse inference drawn against them in a 209A hearing. So um, there's different, obviously there's different uh, burdens uh, between the, the criminal case and the 209A case. So um, I think that's why the, the, court, the case law allows for that adverse inference. Um, yeah, I think also the court understands, but the statute also contemplates that where there'll be so little other evidence and so other, there's no other way for a court to make a determination. Nobody has to incriminate themselves, but the final resolution should not be that the survivor is then walking out of court without an order for protection. So the, it's, it's the court's discretion. I'm not saying the court never denies an order when the defendant has taken the fifth, but in my experience, the court does really weigh the participation or the testimony of the defendant in making that decision. If the testimony is no testimony, the court does seem inclined to enter that inference. There was another question. I answered it in text, but if we want to take two seconds and answer it. Um, it says, do you have any examples of when cross of the defendant has been helpful? Um, I, I I think when you have, I'm trying to, I, I, I know I've only done it one time in one of these cases and I can't think of the specific fact that I wanted to get from them. I think it was something that, um was incontrovertible and i had backup documentation to you know stick you know 
to to support that that's a, that's a lot of the that's the problem with cross examining a lot of these cases is you don't know what they're going to say and there's there hasn't been a whole discovery process to help you to help guide you through um, asking them questions there, there hasn't you haven't deposed them before so you don't have their prior deposition questions to uh, develop a whole cross examination so part of it is you don't know what they're going to say so you got to be careful of that as well um, uh, so those are things to think about. I, sorry, I can't remember specifically what it was something that I knew he couldn't deny. And I think I probably had backup documentation to prove it if he tried to deny it. And I don't know. I can't remember why I thought it would be good to hear it from his mouth as opposed to just getting the documents in in the first place. But um, Lola, what what has been your experience? The only thing that comes to mind is if you bring text messages and there's a whole way to bring those, but where the person says, I was, I never said that, I didn't do that, or that didn't happen, and you actually have evidence that they had. And so that would be one time, but I agree, Alex, unless I know for sure what they're asserting could not be correct, and I can prove that, I wouldn't really bother because there's not much of a point. Um, also, defendants can lie. That is a question that our clients ask all the time, and we don't have a solution or an answer. Well, what if they lie? Yeah, they they might. So there's nothing sacred about a cross-exam. Right. Um, so unless there's any other questions, I, I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you for being here. And I say I hope you guys um, take on these cases. Like I said, I was in your shoes uh, five years ago, and I, I've done these cases and I've found it um, rewarding to help people. And um, it's been a helpful way, you know, just to get into court if that's something you are looking to do. Um, if you're not getting enough uh, in your in your practice, um, it's a good way to do it. You, you take the case on, um, you hit it hard for a couple of days and, you know, within 10 days, you're usually out of the case. So it's, it's workable. Um, you can do it and we can get you help um, to get you up on your feet. If you need someone to work with on, on the first couple ones, um, Women's Bar Foundation can help you out with that. Um, there, there's resources. So I hope you guys uh, take these cases. And I said it better. Thanks all. I think that's our time. Great. Thanks everybody. Take care. Bye everyone.